Today in the Newsmaker Spotlight, highlights of a virtual discussion held last week sponsored by the Faith Coalition for the Common Good here in Springfield. It's talking about changes coming in Illinois that are intended to eliminate cash bond so that people don't spend months in jail awaiting trial because they can't afford to bond out even though others charged with the exact same offense who have more money are able to go free. Proponents of the change say as a matter of simple fairness, it has raised some concerns about whether it could lead to dangerous potential criminals being released early and posing a risk to others. The Faith Coalition for the Common Good and the Illinois Network for Pre-Trial Justice held this virtual discussion to try to address some of those issues. Here's some of the highlights of that conversation. And just to break down what Illinois Network for Pre-Trial Justice is, the network launched two years ago in the summer of 2019. The network is composed of nearly 40 organizations, and they all work across statewide to come with a common goal, and that is to end money bond spread awareness and give everybody an equal opportunity. So with that being said, I would like to get into one of our first speakers today. He is a very educated man. He is straight out of University of Illinois Springfield, um, a professor there. He studies over criminology and he is over the Department of Criminal Justice, just to give us a better understanding of what this is before we go deeper into the presentation. So Dr. Steve Snevely, you have the stage. Thanks, Jalen. Uh, thanks everyone for attending uh, tonight's really important town hall. Um, I know that everyone's you know busy and, and to spend your time talking about an issue as important of this as this, I think is something that uh, is, is a really awesome thing for everybody to do. So, so thank you very much. As, as Jalen said, my name is Steve Schnebley. Uh, I'm a professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Illinois Springfield. Uh, my PhD is in Criminology and Criminal Justice from the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And uh, my teaching and research, uh, I've covered lots of different things, but some of the areas are gangs, criminological theory, policing, uh, the criminal justice process, and then also communities and crime. When I was first asked to be part of tonight's town hall, uh, quite frankly, I was just really excited because um, it's it's an issue. It's an issue that I'm going to sort of try to sell you on the importance of, but it's one that for years I've taught in my classes as being one of the things that uh, presents some really glaring challenges to a just and fair system, and one that tends not to be really prevalent in, in the eyes of the public. So when we talk about pretrial decisions in general, they, they, they don't get a lot of publicity. They don't get a lot of, of press as, as a major issue. There's lots of discussion on prisons. Uh, there's lots of discussion on things like the death penalty and police and what have you. But, but lots of these pretrial decisions can actually have really serious ramifications and can very much hinder a pursuit of a system that we want to be fair and just. So tonight's topic that I'm going to again, do my best to try to sell you on the importance of, is this issue of the use of money bail or, or money bond, and then the associated practice of, of pretrial incarceration that, that can stem uh, from failures in that system of, of money bail or money bond. Uh, as I'm a professor, a teacher, one of the things I always like to do is sort of uh, use my opportunities for what are sort of teachable moments. I know a lot of you have signed into tonight's uh, webinar because you you know a lot about this stuff and it's something that you're passionate about and you care a lot about, uh, but some others may not really know much about pretrial decision-making. You may not know uh, what money bail is or how pretrial incarceration works. So I think we can just quickly walk through just a, an example that I think will highlight for all of you some of the real challenges that our current system poses 
um, and how the way we do things currently in a lot of ways um, sort of violates some of these presumably inviolate principles that we have of, of justice in the US of A. So about just a quick overview, um, you know, we can walk through a, a hypothetical example. I always like to give names to my hypothetical people. And, you know, since this is a public forum and I don't want to forget what name I'll give, we'll, we'll call this hypothetical fellow Steve. I think I'll remember that. Um, and in this example, um, and very unfortunately for him, Steve just been arrested by the police uh, and he's been uh, charged by the prosecutor with a, with a felony crime. Now, after arrest and after the charging decision, um, the next step in the criminal justice process would ideally be to hold a criminal trial to determine whether or not Steve is in fact guilty of the crime for which he's been charged. Uh, but unfortunately for Steve and for the system as a whole, the, the system doesn't turn on a dime as it were, uh, especially when it comes to the court proceedings. Uh, these can be processes that can take months, uh, sometimes up to uh, you know, years in length. Uh, court dockets are, are just chock full uh, and the, the court process can be one that can be really slow. So for Steve in this case, his earliest trial date uh, is seven months from the day in which he was arrested. So now the question becomes, well, what becomes of Steve while he waits for his trial date? Uh, now, we can look at the situation and say, all right, the police had probable cause to make an arrest. They, they thought it was more likely that he did it than he didn't. That's basically what probable cause is in a nutshell. Uh, and the prosecutor believed that there was probable cause to support a charge. Now, depending on what state you're in, there's an indictment process with a grand jury or a preliminary hearing. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, the next step, again, would be a trial. It's important to remember that just because Steve was arrested, just because he was charged by a prosecutor, just because he was presumably indicted, um, that he's not yet been convicted of anything. Legally, he's, he's still completely innocent, according to the rules of our system. Now, ideally, Steve would simply return to his home, he would return to his life. Uh, not an easy thing to do after one has been arrested and charged with a crime. Um, but again, he would live his life, you know, kiss his children goodnight. And he would participate in his own defense as he awaits for his trial. Uh, in that way, if he's found guilty at trial, he can be punished. Uh, if he's found not guilty, then the system provides no mechanism for him to be punished at all. We don't punish the innocent. Uh, and then he's, he's free to go on his merry way. Uh, however, as, as, a, as a cynic might point out, uh, the potential of a guilty verdict uh, and the potential of a resulting punishment hanging over Steve's head may be enough incentive for him uh, it, during this period awaiting his trial to uh, what we may call make a run for it, uh, to abscond, to, uh, to, to hit the road and try to start a new life, you know, a steamership to somewhere new and awesome. Uh, and then basically not show up for his own trial. And, and in, the, in the end, that's where money bail comes in. Uh, to ensure that he'll show up for a trial, what the judge can allow, although bail is not guaranteed by the Constitution, a judge can allow the opportunity to pay the court a large sum of money. Uh, again, the discretion uh, of the size of that will be up to the judge. Uh, he pays a large sum of money, which he will eventually get back if he shows up for trial. And this is what would be known as Steve was granted bail. Uh, in the event that he doesn't show up for trial, his money is forfeited to the court. Uh, once he And once he gets reacquired by the system, as it were, he will sit in jail and await a new court date. Bail is a little bit like a security deposit in a lot of ways. You, you pay your money as an accused person, um, you're allowed to go free until your trial date. And then if you show up for your trial, you get your quote unquote deposit back. Um, we really run into problems with money bail, however, uh, when uh, our hypothetical Steve cannot pay 
the required sum to the court. Um, when bail cannot be paid, I mean, the court can't get its deposit, uh, Stephen's instead detained. Uh, he's incarcerated prior to his prior to his trial. He, he awaits in jail uh, for as long as it takes for his trial or the next court proceeding to happen. Again, this can be many months up to and sometimes including over a year long. Um, and this is important to remember, again, that this is an individual who is being incarcerated, having been convicted of nothing. And he's being incarcerated owing solely to the fact that he did not possess enough financial resources to make bail. Uh, because of this, he will sit in jail till his court date. And again, often this can be many, many months. Now, again, this may have been something that many of you were familiar with. And, and I think uh, for a lot of people, how bail works in pretrial seems pretty straightforward. But some of you, it may have been new. But I think regardless, um, as is hopefully evident in a hypothetical example that I've sort of you know generally walked through, this practice of using monetary bail and then when those folks cannot make bail, detaining them pretrial, uh, in a lot of ways directly violates two of the most inviolate, supposedly inviolate principles of our justice system. One, this idea that justice is blind, um, which is something that a lot of people really cling tightly to in our system. Again, I think many people who are cynical would realize, no, it's not blind, but we should make it as blind as possible. And then the second inviolate principle is that the accuser innocent until proven guilty. So let's go back to the justice is blind principle. Basically, what we're saying here is that we want a system in which race, gender, social class, um, whether you're attractive or non-attractive, how much money you have in your bank, whether you're left or right-handed, those types of things should not and cannot be the basis for decision-making in the criminal justice system. But by definition, the use of money bail is disadvantageous in that it use, uses a um, legally irrelevant factor, uh, how much wealth someone has, as a basis for making important decisions. The poor are disadvantaged by money bail, who in the end, the only thing that differs poor people from rich people is, is how much money they have. Uh, that is a huge problem for our current system and our current way of doing things. Uh, moreover, when we consider the way that race and ethnicity and social class are all inherently intertwined in, in American society at present, uh, the use of money bail opens up an entire uh, series of issues related to justice and fairness uh, and as it pertains to crossing racial and ethnic lines. So it's a very, very serious issue with very serious potential consequences. Uh, again, I mentioned earlier that bail is not guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. We don't have a right to bail as citizens of the United States. Uh, it's up to the discretion of judges for the most part, to determine whether or not we are granted bail or not. Individuals who look at us and look at our uh, cases and decide, well, can we trust this person or what should we set their bail at? Um, for decades, criminal justice researchers and criminologists such as myself have produced research that has revealed some very alarming trends in bail decisions. Uh, in particular, considerable disparities across racial and ethnic categories in whether bail is granted, uh, the amount of bail that, uh, the, the, the amount of money uh, that is set for bail. Uh, and these are huge disparities that, as we'll talk about in a little bit, can have very, very dire consequences for the people of color who, uh, who experience them. Uh, the second issue, uh, this sort of inviolate principle, is this idea that the innocent uh, are innocent, in fact, until uh, they are proven guilty. If you're accused of something, that's not the same as being guilty of it, that everyone deserves their day in court. Uh, moreover, we have the right to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, not by a prosecutor, not by a police officer, 
uh, but by a jury of our peers. And while there are some you know, nuts and bolts of criminal justice and the process, which uh, make that nothing all the all 100% true all the time, uh, critics of money bail and of pretrial incarceration, I believe, rightly assert that by detaining individuals in jail for failure to make bail is, in fact, punishment prior to conviction. Uh, we are punishing individuals who've been convicted of nothing. And moreover, it is a very serious punishment indeed. Uh, you may say, well, it's just, it's just in jail for a little while before your trial. Well, the reality is that not only are jails not very nice places, uh, very not nice places, uh, the folks who are detained prior to their trial date uh, tend to receive longer sentences than those who make bail. Um, they tend to have worse outcomes in the court proceedings. Uh, there's a lot of extra pressure, as I'll talk about in a second, for plea deals for a variety of reasons. Um, so the outcomes are, are very real, and we've measured them for a very long time. The other issue um, is how dehumanizing jails actually are. Critics use the term dehumanizing because of the crowded nature of jails, that they're violent, uh, they're decrepit, they're some of the the, the worst managed, most uh, physically decrepit uh, physical buildings in the entire criminal justice system in the United States. Moreover, when you look at the populations that are housed in jails, they are incredibly uh, heterogeneous. The types of people that end up in jail uh, can in many ways make jails a bigger nightmare and a bigger security nightmare for the system itself than what we would expect to find in an American prison. Uh, for example, jails have people that would include a convicted murderer who was transferred there to the jail due to prison overcrowding in a state prison. Jails include folks like uh, mentally ill homeless individuals who the police pick up off the street uh, for violating various rules and laws. Uh, meth users, uh, other drug addicts, uh, folks who are um, alcoholics and are drunk at the time they're picked up. Uh, we know that there's a strong correlation between certain types of drug use and, and violent uh, sort of outbursts of behavior that make those people particularly dangerous, especially before they dry out. And then in the same room with those types of individuals, you have the poor Steve individual who in this case, uh, in our hypothetical case, was simply waiting for his day in court to prove and argue for his innocence. And the only reason he's in jail with these dangerous folks is because uh, he simply couldn't make bail. Uh, and then on top of all that, there's all the, the, the things that you have to lose. Uh, that can that can cause that, that can be taken from you, or that you can lose in life for even just having a short stint in jail, uh, even a few weeks, even a month, even a few days. Um, being in jail can cost you your job. If you don't show up to work, you get fired. You can have your kids taken away from you for custody reasons. You might lose your house. You might lose your car. You might lose many of the things that matter a lot to you. And so, with all these potential losses at stake, it's no wonder that many people who are um, being incarcerated pre-trial will actually plead guilty simply to be released sooner than they would have been had they pled not guilty and awaited their trial. Mm. Um, that is a horrific reality. And occurrences such as this are unjust, they're unfair, and they, and they must be fixed with, with reform and, and future efforts. Um, we need changes to the broken parts of our system. We must critically look at them. We need to change them. We need to transform them. And moreover, I would call on the audience, those of you listening to me tonight, we need you. We need you. We need your friends. We need your community to become engaged. As citizens of this country and as this state, uh, we have an obligation to be active participants in our social institutions. Uh, and criminal justice is one of those institutions. 
um, I would encourage you to learn about the system. I would encourage you to critically examine the system. And I would mostly encourage you to demand that you and your friends and your family and your community deserve better in many ways than our system is delivering us. And I would ask that you demand and force the system to do better. Um, as you'll see a little bit later on tonight in this webinar, uh, there are really great people who are out there right now, um, pounding the pavement, racking their brains, putting in uh, the blood, sweat, and tears to make the types of changes that could help fix some of these issues that I've highlighted in, in my few minutes I've spoken to you. Um, but there's still more to be said on the harms. I mean, I'm, I'm just a professor. I sit in my ivory tower and study these things as a sociologist does. And I'm very aware of, of the harm and the pain and the suffering, but oftentimes from a distance. Um, these aren't things that have personally affected my life, for example. So um, what I'll do is I'll turn it back over to Jalen uh, right now, and he's going to introduce someone uh, who has personally experienced some of the, the harm and the suffering that I've sort of referenced in more broader sociological terms. Um, and hopefully that might even make it that little bit more real uh, for all of you. So uh, thank you for all your time, everybody. I'll stick around for this, for questions uh, at the very end, and I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Jalen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve, for that beautiful insight on the matter, just to give us a better understanding. Uh, next, we are moving into our testimonial element in this presentation. So first, we'll be getting a family perspective, somebody who went through it because their family members went through this situation. So I wanted to bring about uh, Stephanie Taylor, who is a community organizer for United Congregations of Metro East. So Ms. Stephanie Taylor, you have the spotlight. Thank you, Jalen. Um, as Jalen said, my name is Stephanie Taylor. Um, I have two sons who are federally incarcerated. A little bit about my youngest son. Um, at the time of his incarceration, he was 25 years old. Um, he went in the night that my brother was murdered. Um, was um, he went to, he was out of town, so they transported him back to jail. Um, due to the, the things that were going on, um, he wasn't able to function out in the population with everyone else um, because he was grieving and he didn't want that to be took in some other kind of way from inmates or something. But anyway, he um, went to solitary confinement um, and he refused to come out. He would not come out. Um, every visit I went to, he was not there. Um, when it was time to go to court, the first time we went, um, they took me through the process of him coming home uh, while he go to trial, being on house monitoring, running my address, making sure I had a phone and all of that, only to deny him um, being able to come home uh, on the monitor. He had never been arrested before. He doesn't have a criminal history. Um, he sat six, six months in St. Clair County. Um, jail. The third month in, I started calling and demanding for proof of life. 
Um, I don't know what's going on in there. He's not calling home. You guys are saying he in solitary confinement. He won't come out. I didn't know that. So after calling and calling and calling, finally, the sheriff um, allowed me a special visit with him. And I was able to see him um, twice. And then they moved him. Then they moved him to uh, a county outside of uh, a little past Alton. I can't remember the exact name of it. Um, and he sat there another nine months um, before he um, went to trial or even saw the judge again in solitary confinement, um, not being out in population and me or any of us not knowing what's going on with him. Um, I think my story is important because he didn't have a, there was no, re, had we had the money to bond him out, he would have been able to grieve in my brother's death. He had custody of his son at the time. He would have been able to make arrangements for his child. What if I had not been that grandmother that stepped up? Where would my grandson be today? You know, had I not stepped up for him? All of those things would have been taken care of had money bond, in cash money bond been in effect back in, you know what I'm saying, during that process. Uh, and which is one of the reasons why I feel like it's, in, it's important um, for it to be passed and to stay because if you've never been in a position where you can't protect your child, I'm here to tell you that it's a bad space. It's a bad space to watch him dragged, literally dragged out of the courtrooms um, because of him just, I don't know, his mental status. I don't know what it was, but they had no, no emotion about that at all. Um, not knowing if he's living or dying, not knowing if he's eating or they're feeding him. And he's just sitting there. They're, they haven't decided if he's guilty, if they have enough evidence. We went from come down here, let us talk to you, to him sitting for months and months and months, and then finally being charged with a crime that carried 60 to 90 years. Like, how did that happen? Um, and would it have happened had he not been held all of that time? So um, that is my story. Um, that is why I feel like it's important um, for it to be in effect. Um, also, I it's important for us family members. People take people don't take notice to what we go through as parents, how many sleepless nights we have, how we worry, how we have to hold straight faces for their children to keep them pushing through therapy and psychology and the whole nine, all because there wasn't something different in place or things wasn't done differently, not to take away from what he done or to say he's guilty or innocent, but to say that the way that things were handled was a total injustice. Thank you, Jalen.
Thank you, Stephanie, for that wonderful, inspiring story, and a beautiful testimony. So thank you again for participating. So now we will move over to our next part and is really getting deeper into our presentation here. So for our next speaker, she has a foot in every aspect of advocacy, a true advocate in the community. Very inspiring what she does. Uh, she does things such as youth mentoring, a partner of mine that does full-time community organizing for Faith Coalition, and as well as started her own organization called Walk It Like You Talk It. I would like to introduce Ms. Dominique Bates-Smith. It's all yours. Thanks, Jalen. So what is the impact of pretrial incarceration? Obviously, the impact ranges depending on the individual, but incarcerating someone pretrial can have significant consequences that can affect someone's life uh, for the rest of their life. Incarcerating someone pretrial, even for a short amount of time, such as a few days, can set off a domino effect that can cause someone to lose their jobs, their housing, even custody of their children, as well as losing access to medical care and medication. A month in jail can be a significant amount of time for someone with public benefits, such as social security, uh, unemployment, as well as healthcare. Because they're, most, because they're likely to have lost access to those benefits while incarcerated, uh, end up getting the money and eventually getting out. Uh, but the reality is that again, it can have significant long-term effects that will uh, change someone's life forever. And the jail deaths have been proven to be the most common within the first few days of incarceration, which is an extremely risky time for someone dealing with uh, mental health as well as substance use issues. Pass over Jalen. Thank you, Dominique, for the giving us the harms of pre-child. Before we go into the principles and to our next guest speaker, I want to go over a little bit of the effects of money bond and then also why it may matter to you or myself. So real quickly, with the effects of money bond, every year, more than a quarter million of people are incarcerated in 92 county jails in Illinois. 90% of them are being jailed pre-trial, which is higher than the national average of 67%. A majority of these people are incarcerated simply because they cannot afford to pay money bond, as you heard Professor Steve Snedley mentioned earlier. So why this may matter is because a judge plays a significant role over somebody's future. A judge has the power to do many things, such as deny bond altogether or incarcerate them if they think they are not safe enough to be released or have a flight risk. Uh, judges also have the ability to get set conditions on a person's release cap include everything from check-ins with pretrial service officers to house arrest with electronic monitoring. Also, they have a chance to set a money bond and that must be paid to secure that person's freedom. And you may ask, why would I say pay to serve freedom? Because you're locked up, as we heard both Dominique and Professor Sneebly say, that while in those jail cells, you can't get out until you pay bond you're just sitting in there and you have a better chance of losing things such as your social security your benefits your home you literally have to pay for your freedom when it comes to money bond so to dive deeper into it when a judge sets money bond the court has cleared that person for release the judge has legally determined that a person is not a danger and their freedom is their freedom must be access to money so if you have money you're free to go if not you just have to sit in there now, 
this is unconstitutional because this is a wealth-based punishment inflicted while people are still presumed innocent. If these individuals had more money in their bank accounts, they'd be at home, able to keep working, supporting their families and other loved ones, making positive changes in the community. And people continue to hold money bonds because there's this huge myth behind it. And that myth is that it ensures a person will show up to court once they pay them. But instead, judges are often setting money bonds far above what a person can pay. Like I said earlier, this practice is unconstitutional because it denies people due process, discriminates against poor people, as we heard Professor Sneebly say earlier, and against Black people and other people of color. Now, I know the first thing you think of when you hear race is, oh, it's a Black versus white aspect, but it's deeper than that. It is not saying, oh, it's Black versus white. It is very, when you look at the economic values, the median wages are significantly different. When you look at people of color, they make a far less amount versus people who are not of color. So obviously, this is going to impact people of color way more. Now, that's not saying anybody can't go through these problems, but it has a bigger emphasis on people that look like me, live in communities such as myself or other people who have gone through those type of aspects. Some of the discussion from the Faith Coalition for the Common Goods online forum related to money bond and the Pre-Trial Fairness Act. Again, Illinois set to eliminate cash bond in most cases. There are critics who say that will make the streets more dangerous. But again, for proponents of the idea, they say it's a matter of simple fairness. You've got some of the discussion here in the Newsmaker Spotlight on the newsfeed, WMAY on 92.7, 94.7, and 9.70 a.m.